exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. My name is John Fournier. I will be your host for tonight. Tonight on the show, uh, we have uh, Dennis Laidler from the Potter Park Zoo talking to us about uh, some fantastic things going on over there. John Beck from the MSU Museum. And uh, John Leopard, or Leopold, I believe, uh, from the Williamston Theaters. So we'll have all those guests. But right now in the studio, we have Beth Sanford from Hair Wave, which is a hairstyling... Uh... Uh, our fashion show is called Hair Wear. My salon's called Ruby's Paradise Salon. We're on Michigan Avenue, okay. across from the Green Door Bar. Fantastic. Right around the Green Door. Everybody knows where the exactly. Green Door is. So it's That's a great a location. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So tell me about uh, Hair Wave. It's a runway fashion show that's been organized. Hair Wear, um, it started with uh, Bohemian Barber... Um, years ago, and Terry, that owned Bohemian Barber, she closed and works at our salon now, so she handed out to us. So this is our second one that Ruby's Paradise has put on, and we've got twice as much going on with this one as we did with the last. There's 10 hairstylists from all over town, and we've got 34 models. There's going to be a raffle and uh, after party with Space Brains playing. Mm -hmm. We've got DJ Chris Clark doing the runway for us from 7 to 9. Mm -hmm. That's all ages and there's no cover. The uh, after party is 18 and over. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it should be a lot of fun. We're really excited about it. So it's a it's a group of salons in the area and, and hairstylists. Are you specifically trying to showcase the talents of the salons or can people go there to enjoy fashion? Uh, wh- what other kind of uh, events could people or things could people enjoy there? Well, it's a fashion runway show, so right. it's it's the hair wear is for our hairstylists, but there's also um, some local fashion designers and mm-hmm. there's uh, makeup artists. We've got uh, different the salons that are going to be Ruby's Paradise and Hairmasters Aspirations, J C Penney's, Fiesta, Regis, and Chroma. So it just is to advertise all of the salons that are involved. Now the stylists that are doing it, so it's just, and there'll be a raffle. So that's to uh, show all the little places in the neighborhood. We've got the Bead Boutique and uh, Capital City Collectibles and emails and Everybody Reads. We've got gift certificates for all different kinds of places. Mm-hmm. So just to promote the neighborhood. How many years has this event been going on? Um, Ruby's Paradise has only done it twice. We did right. it six months ago in uh, Bohemian Barber did it years ago, and they haven't done it for a while, but they did mm-hmm. it. Um, they were in business for 12 and a half years, so I'm not sure what year she started doing it, but right. it was a while ago. Right, so. right. What kind of response did you get six months ago? We had four stylists, and we had 14 models. Mm-hmm. We did it at the Temple Club, and there was um, about 100 people showed up. Great. We didn't advertise at all, so this mm-hmm. time we've got Lots more going on, so there should be mm-hmm. a lot more people there. Hoping for a, a larger turnout. 100's impressive. Yeah, That's for not advertising. Yeah. We were pretty impressed with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you holding it this time? Give the details once more. It's at uh, Excel Night Club mm-hmm. on 224 South Washington Square. Mm-hmm. And it's between 
the fashion shows from 7 to 9, and then the after party will go on for about an hour after that. So, uh, and that will be with Space Brains. And during the fashion show, we're going to have DJ Chris Clark. He does uh, techno and tacos. Mm -hmm. Same guy. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> he does great work. He did right. our other one, and it was a fabulous response. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, among some of the um, individuals contributing to this, it says specifically clothing by Barry Noxon. Tell me, tell me about that. She makes the clothing for um, our salon. She did for the last one as well. Mm -hmm. um, she does awesome stuff. If anybody's seen her thing, she does. Uh, she's had them at our, our salon and at Metro Space, and she's done a fashion show for the Rock the Vote not too long ago. Mm -hmm. um, she makes men's and women's clothing and just redesigns. All different kinds of stuff. It's great. She's right. made a bunch of men's shirts and women's clothing and skirts and everything like that. So mm -hmm. They're really cool. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Very cool. Now, you're raffling off products and gift certificates. What might people, uh, if they were so inclined to, uh, uh, to enter into the raffle, what might people be able to find in there? We've got gift certificates from the Bead Boutique, Regis Salon, Capital City Collectibles, Emails Restaurant, Everybody Reads. Mm -hmm. Gone Wired Cafe, the Industry Source, which is one of our supply stores. That's hair supplies. Mm -hmm. um, Replay Entertainment Exchange, which is a brand new. Uh, they're in Old Town. It's a replay for uh, music. They've got right. CDs and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's all the uh, those are gift certificates, and we've got comic books from Capital City Collectibles. There's gift certificates from some of the other salons mm -hmm. for hair services. So, mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, where can people find out information about uh, your salon or about uh, the hairware uh, event uh, outside of listening to the impact? Where can people go? Um, Ruby's Paradise Salon is on MySpace under Ruby's Paradise Salon. Mm -hmm. um, we're on Michigan Avenue across from the Green Door. Mm -hmm. So anybody could stop and we're open seven days a week. So there's usually always somebody there. We open at 10, and we're open until um, usually at least 7 or 8 at night, mm -hmm. um, except on Sundays we're only open until 5. Mm -hmm. um, our phone number is 367-2206 if anybody want to call and make an appointment. Mm -hmm. And the hair aware, um, we're just going to be doing it tomorrow, and we, we'll probably do another one in another six months or so. So if everything goes well at Excel, we'll be doing it there again. Fantastic. For the next one. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Tell us about the event at all. Mm. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for coming into Impact Exposure. And everybody, don't forget Hairwear tomorrow night at Excel. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Coming up on the other side of this one, we're going to hear from uh, Dennis Laidler from the Potter Park Zoo on Impact Exposure. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. 
For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on The Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. We're back here on Impact Exposure. My name is John, your host for tonight. And sitting across the table from me is Dennis Laidler of the Potter Park Zoo and a marsupial. How are you? (laughs) I'm fine, and so is the marsupial. Good. What do you have here? It's the American possum. Uh-huh. You know, it's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned it was a marsupial. Not everybody knows that. Right, it's our right. only marsupial in North America. Right, right. This is probably the most well-behaved possum I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> mainly because there's a human within 10 feet of it, and it's not hissing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually are much more apt to hiss than play possum or do the mm-hmm. old, like they're having a stroke mm-hmm. routine that they sometimes do. And, right, right. Um, but they are interesting animals. They're, you know... The only pouched or marsupial mammal. Right. And it's only the females that have pouches. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're related distantly to animals like kangaroos and, wall- kangaroos and wallabies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they're the only mammal in Michigan that has a prehensile or grasping tail. Now, mm-hmm. when they're this size, adult size, they probably normally wouldn't try to support their entire weight. When they're younger, they will. They'll oh, keep right. from falling on tree limbs and also hang on to mom if they're riding on mom's back. Right, right. Um, they're actually an animal that... Uh, through people activities have actually expanded their range. There never used to be very common a couple hundred years ago, except for the very southern part of Michigan. Right, right. They're much more warm weather adapted. And mm-hmm. You can tell this possum, for example, has never spent a winter outside in Michigan because mm-hmm. the ear margin is intact and the tip of the tail is intact. Ah. At least one Michigan winter, they have frostbite problems. Oh, really? And they'll survive, but they'll lose a little bit of skin around the outer part of their ears or on the tip of their tail right typically. right and i see you petting the possum and obviously it's better behaved than a wild possum is it i mean are, <laughs> well do, can yeah possums get, be... i should clarify this is one that's been hand raised because it was right. orphaned as a baby and we use it in educational right. programs but yeah. it's still a wild animal yes it's just been conditioned to tolerate things that your typical wild possum wouldn't be as apt to tolerate right so. right so people shouldn't go walking up to possums no. and petting them probably no. a bad idea yeah uh they have more teeth in their mouth than any other land mammal in mm. North America. They have mm-hmm. 50 teeth, mm-hmm. and so they're not the longest teeth or the sh- strongest jaws, but they tend to lunge when they bite, so they ah. tend to make lacerations instead right. of puncture. So. Right, right, right. So tell me what's new at the Potter Park Zoo. Well, you know, it's getting close to holiday season. Mm-hmm. There's two big things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Breakfast with Santa coming up on mm-hmm. uh, Saturday, December 16th. Mm-hmm. Um, both an 8.30 and a 10.30 seatings, and they can check our website for details on that. But it's a lot of, it's a real fun. It's a great breakfast. Um, the kids get a chance to meet Santa. Mm-hmm. We have animals like the possum and lots of other <laughs> animals, education animals, out mm-hmm. up close. Some of them are touchable animals. Right. Um, and uh, thus they get a chance to go out and check out all the exhibit animals at the zoo. It's, right. And that's uh, December 16th. It's a Saturday. Right. And then starting uh, this Thursday night, our Wonderland of Lights. If you've never been there, we light up the entire zoo. The people, have, the staff have been working on it for several months now. Yeah. We have several miles of Christmas lights throughout the zoo. Right. And there aren't many large public uh, Christmas light displays left in Michigan. Right. Um, even Domino Farms has quit doing theirs down there. So. Really? And uh, it's just a wonderful time. You know, the zoo is lit up. Um, we have all kinds of musical groups. 
Um, there's things for people to do, depending on what night of it is. For example, um, on Friday and Saturday night, Mr. and Mrs. Claus will be there. There's ah. things like build your own Christmas cookie. We have live animals. Um, our website, which is just potterparkzoo.org, mm-hmm. lists all the different nights and activities. We always have musical groups. Um, and for students here on campus, it's just a short 15-minute walk on the river trail. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to have a vehicle. You don't have to ride a catabus. You can just right. take a nice walk down. Um, it runs from 5 to 8 every night, starting Thursday night, the 30th of November, through um, New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. The only night we don't have it is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Those are the only two. Uh, nights that it's not, and it runs from five to eight. There's restaurant there, so they can get hot chocolate and those mm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, we always have musical groups, usually several, both indoor and outdoor. Right. And so, uh, between so, people's schedules and the weather, there's always several great opportunities to, right. to go enjoy their lights. And right. um, some of the animals are actually pretty active towards the evening. You can actually see some of the animals in oh, their exhibits cool. too. So you have um, a possum with you now, but tell me about uh, some of the more exotic animals that people can see at the Potter Park Zoo. Well, you know, we're proud that we're an accredited zoo. There are only about one in ten zoos in North America, animal facilities, are accredited. What does that mean, accredited? Accredited means we meet the standards of the American Zoo and Aquarium Association. Okay. Like I said, there's roughly a little over 2,000 wild animal parks, roadside zoos, and larger zoos in North America, and only about 200 are accredited. Wow. And every five years, we go through this complete reaccreditation process, which mm-hmm. we do again this year. Right. Um, and that allows us to participate in animal loans and trades and buy and selling with other accredited institutions, but also... We participate in SSP programs, which are Species Survival Plan, which is um, a scientific um, survival plan for endangered species. Mm -hmm. It includes um, scientific captive breeding. Mm -hmm. We have 15 SSP species in uh, our zoo. If you look at the total number of species we have and what percentage are SSP, it's one of the highest in the country. We're very proud of that. Oh, wow. For example, we have, they're still technically cubs, but our three tigers now are well over 200 pounds, our ah, amber tigers. Mm-hmm. And when they were born uh, about 19 months ago, it made national international news because they're only about 400 or so in the wild and about 130 or so in captivity. So mm-hmm. adding three more to the population is a big deal. Right. So things like amber tigers and snow leopards and red pandas and black rhinos were the smallest zoo in North America to have both a male and female black rhino. Oh, wow. Um, bongos, which are a um, endangered species of antelope, a scimitar horned oryx. Mm-hmm. Um, we have several primate species, um, both lemur, two species of lemurs, um, two mm-hmm. species of tamarins mm-hmm. and uh, mandrels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's... And then we have a brand new, even though they're not endangered, there's so much fun to watch, uh, the new river otter exhibit. Oh, yeah. It has underwater lighting, so you can see it during Wonderland Lights and still see the otters. Right, right. You are literally about an inch away, the thickness of the plexiglass from them when they're in the underwater viewing area. Right, right. Can I just say thank you for bringing the possum in as opposed to the tigers? That was (laughs) really... (laughs) Yeah. If you watch what they do, one of the things um, we do for all the animals at the zoo, but some animals more or less depending on how much they need it, It's called environmental enrichment, and basically it involves um, stimulating the animals to do natural behavior in their artificial or zoo environment. And for the tiger cubs, one of the more spectacular ones is to take like a a deer hide, and we have this big metal arm with a chain and a spring that they would use on a garage door opener, Mm -hmm. and we suspend it and fasten it with maybe baleen twine, Mm -hmm. maybe 12 feet in the air, and the tigers all want it. And they yeah. will leap and fight. They'll leap to the air 12 feet in the air and fight over it, suspend really? themselves from that fight. It's just spectacular to watch. Actually, is very useful behavior for them to do. And right. uh, 
So yeah, something like that. <laughs> we haven't wa been in their exhibit since they were weaned. Yeah, as far as with them goes. Right, right, right. And that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite animal at the Potter Park Zoo? I get asked that all the time, <laughs> and you know. What I tell people is I really don't have favorites. I, you know, and it's not just an answer or a stock answer I give. And I think the reason why, as an educational curator and a trainer as a wildlife biologist, what I find is if there's an animal you really don't like, it probably means you don't know enough about it yet. Ah, I you know, see. For a lot of people, a, mus a possum like this is just a, a large rat with a pouch, you know. But mm -hmm. the more you find out about them, yeah, they're not the brightest animals in the world. <laughs> you know, they're like, you know. Why did the possum cross the road or why did the chicken cross the road to prove to possums it really could be done? You know, those right. kind of things. You hear those jokes about possum slap. But, right. you know, they may not be the brightest mammal, but they've increased their range as people have developed and changed habitat and caused other animals to disappear. Mm -hmm. They've actually increased the amount of areas that they, they're able to survive in. Right. So, um, you know, and they are only marsupial and there's a lot of other things that are neat about them. Right. Some things that we'd like to know more about them. They age very quickly. In captivity, if you can keep one three years, you've done an amazing job. Really? Yeah. This one's getting old. It's almost two years old now. Wow. What's the lifespan of a possum in the wild? Less, Much less than that. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So under ideal conditions, if you can keep one going three years or a little more, you're doing really, really well. How often would do possums procreate in their lifetime? Um, usually a female... If she can get two or three litters in her lifetime, she's doing really well. Wow. But those litters can be quite large. Yeah. Um, anywhere from as little as two or three up to a dozen babies. Right. Now, after a year, if more than two or three are still alive, then she's That's done extremely well. Yeah. yeah. That's so odd because, I mean, m the contact that most people have with animals would be domestic pets. Right. And they last substantially longer than three right. years. Is that – is for like, let's say, and I'm, I don't mean to compare a, a possum with these other animals, but a squirrel, for instance, or or a raccoon. What is their lifespan? <laughs> well, you're talking about totally different animals, right? And, totally different. On, and when you talk about in the wild or in captivity, you're talking about totally different lifespans right. and yeah. longevities. Yeah, lifespan we normally consider. Um, what an average animal lives and longevity is how long can they live to. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there's that's sort of how we use it. So when you talk about the average lifespan of, say, a possum, since the majority of them don't get through the first year, the average lifespan is pretty short. Right. But most people want to know is longevity. How long can they live to? Right. And more than two and a half to three years is doing a long time in the wild. Wow. Um, squirrels, you know, I don't – I probably should – I'm sort of going – Based on old memory here, I know in live trapping things I did as a college student right. and following um, – I know squirrels were living in Sault Ste. Marie in the wild. It's within the city well over four or five years, some of them. Wow. Again, there's, high, there's a high mortality each year. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, with raccoons, in captivity, they can live you know, 10, 12 years yeah. or more. But yeah. in the wild, again – the average lifespan is much, much shorter. <laughs> much shorter, much shorter. Yeah. For a lot of animals, you can at least double the the life expectancy mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. captivity and sometimes much longer. Right. Very cool. So, you know, the, the record longevity is going to be in captivity and it's going to – but sometimes in the wild, animals have amazing lifespans too. Right, right. So uh, how did you get into working in with animals at the Park <laughs> Well, um my training is as a wildlife biologist. Yeah. I got my bachelor's at Lake Superior State up uh -huh. in Sault Ste. Marie, and I went to graduate school here. I got a master's here in wildlife biology. Cool. 
And I ended up working at a wildlife center in Oregon for three years. Mm-hmm. It was a wildlife rehabilitation and an education center. So I got to work with lots of birds. It was a raptor center primarily, but we also ended up with bears and cougars and all kinds of stuff. But we would sent, be sent birds of prey or raptors from about four different states in the West. Um, and so I got to work do things that even falconers don't get to. I had to fly bald right. eagles and golden eagles to yeah. assess whether they were releasable or not. And animals that were not releasable, we would do educational programs. Mm-hmm. And I would, some of the other staff individually would, I, with my Jeep and travel trailer and about eight animals, would leave Oregon in September. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometime in May, I'd get back uh, f- maybe 20 to 30 states and four or 500 presentations later. Right. Right. And I did that for three years, and it was a great experience, but living in a 14-foot travel trailer year-round gets right. old. So I had a chance to come back to Michigan and set up a similar program in cooperation with the vet school here mm-hmm. using uh, raptors, <clears throat> birds of prey that have been treated here and non-releasable, mm-hmm. and a little statewide conservation organization based here in Lansing called MUCC or Michigan United Conservation Clubs. Mm-hmm. And I did that for several years and became their education director. And then I took a couple years off to watch my youngest, my only daughter grow up mm-hmm. a little bit. And then I ended up at the zoo about six years ago, and I'm... R- Technically, my title there is the education curator, mm-hmm. so I'm in charge of all the learning that happens at the zoo, and right. Uh, right. So I get to spend my time with kids and animals all day. It's a rough job. Well, you know? here's here's my next question. Then you don't have a favorite animal. What when you bring the kids in? What is their favorite animal exhibit? What are what are the few that really attract their attention? Well, you know, there are some that are more popular than others. Right. Uh, the tiger cubs are popular because they're cool and they're active. Right. Usually, people want animals that are doing something. Right. So. Yeah. Right away, you're looking at things like the tiger cubs when they're young. The big cats, they sleep 20 hours a day in the wild, so you can't expect them to be doing much more than that in captivity. Right. So the otters are probably one of the most universal favorite because they're active. You know, they're like little kids. They have high metabolism. They play really hard and they sleep hard. They play hard right. and they sleep hard. Yeah. So during one zoo visit, there's a good chance you're going to see them active while you're there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're just as active in the wintertime as in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... That's one of the reasons that that's one of our featured exhibits, our new otter right. exhibit, is yeah. probably one of the, we've been told by several zoo experts, one of the top three otter exhibits in North America, not only oh, from wow. aesthetics, but also from hopefully being able to get otters to breed, which is difficult to do in captivity, and right. uh, for the husbandry of the otters. Um, we spent a lot of time visiting other zoos, mm-hmm. finding out what they liked about their new ex- otter exhibits and what mm-hmm. they would do differently. We talked to um, otter experts from out North America in uh, so we hopefully didn't make too many mistakes and stole most of the good ideas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. So why don't you run through once again the events that are happening? Well, at the, the two, parks, you know, the, the immediate one because there's not many openings left for families to sign up is mm-hmm. Breakfast with Santa, which is um, there's an eight thirty and a ten thirty seating on Saturday September I said September Saturday mm-hmm. December sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's f- you know, children from three to fifteen. They can have as many in their family as they want as long as we still have openings, mm-hmm. and uh, they can. Call our number, which is 517-702-4730 or our potterparkzoo.org website. Right. And then the Wonderland of Lights, which is our Christmas light extravaganza that begins November 30th is the big kickoff. We also have a big kickoff for Toys for Tots and stuff. Uh, It's a big deal over Mm -hmm. at the zoo um, this Thursday, November 30th. Mm -hmm. Runs through uh, New Year's Eve, except for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day night. Right. And it runs from 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock. All kinds of things going on each night. Check our website for what's going on. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming in, and I see your marsupial is falling asleep on us. That's so. a good thing. That means they're relaxed. We like right. our animals relaxed exactly. when they're doing these kind of things. Exactly. So thank you very much for coming in. All right. And, Thanks uh, for having us. Well, well, I never asked what the name of the possum was. 
It's possum. Oh. If it was a domesticated animal, yeah. we now in a zoo records, it might be, have been given a name. It's got an ID number. Zoos oh. keep incredibly good records. I believe it. We follow an, it's like your social security. And once an animal is born or part of a zoo collection, right. if there's an animal missing, it, it's got an ID animal, an ID that stays with it no matter what accredited zoo it goes to. Oh, really? Cool. Along with all its medical records, its history of if we know its parentage, if it was born, most zoo animals don't come from the wild like this one did. This is an orphan from the wild. Right. Most zoo animals come from other zoos, and right. so usually the ancestry is known. So when you're doing breeding, you know not to in breed animals, you can trace all that stuff back. Right, yeah. So for educational purposes, if you're a second grader, for example, and I'm trying to explain the difference between a domesticated animal and a wild animal, yeah. and already I'm holding this supposedly wild <laughs> animal, and then I tell you that it's really a wild animal, and then I give right. it a name like Ophelia the possum, Right. then I'm really setting a confusing message. And True. so for consistency's sake, if it's something like a semi-domesticated animal like the ferret or the bunny, we went on we I don't usually use their names anyways because I think it's I think it's better for students to know what the animal's called. Right. But um, some of our our most of our programs are done by our, our zoo docents, our trained volunteers. Right. And by the way, we do accept students as zoo docents as long as they can guarantee they're going to see us. We're going to see them for at least two years and not just right. put us on their resume. We have a, a docent training class, and docents are the people that do our educational programs. Oh, cool. And if they're interested, again, they can check the website and see. We do have a class coming up this winter mm-hmm. where people can get trained and certified to be educators like I'm doing tonight with the cool. possum. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming in. All right. Always good to be here. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and on the other side of this one, uh, we're going to bring in another fabulous guest here on Impact Exposure. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, the Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. That's, that's oh, we're back on the air here at Impact Exposure, uh, and I am now joined in the studio uh, from two fabulous gentlemen from Williamston Theater, uh, John Leppard, who's the executive director of their new show, Every Christmas Story Ever Told, and Errol Gribble, who's... Um, I'm just an actor. Just an actor. <laughs> that's He's right. Very humbly. And Welcome. And awesome lover. Welcome, <laughs> both of you. So um, tell me about Every Christmas Story Ever Told. Every Christmas Story Ever Told. Well, it's... Basically, uh, what what you said just there. They start out. Um, it's three guys. They're going to do a Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. and one guy starts out as uh, you know, starting as actually Dickens reading a Christmas Carol, and the wheels kind of come off. One of the other guys comes on and says, "Look, I I don't want to do this anymore." And they begin doing every Christmas story you've seen. A lot of stuff on TV. You know, the uh, the Grinch, um, Rudolph, right. Uh, uh, a lot of Gift of the Magi they go into, Frosty the Snowman. Mm-hmm. 
It's basically like putting Christmas in a blender and <laughs> drinking it all and puking it back out of it. So. Oh, nice. Very nice. <laughs> Who's, um, whose idea? Is this a, a, a prearranged script? Did you arrange this on your own? Where did this idea come from? Well, it came from... Errol, you have the names. The uh, yeah, it was it. actually written by uh, three guys and one music guy out east, right? Right. Um, Michael Carlton, Jim Fitzgerald, John Alvarez, and uh, music by Will Knapp. Um, uh, they sort of, they were the actors and the musician in the show as well as the writers of it. So mm-hmm. you can tell a lot of it was sort of created improv based. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a lot of notes throughout the script saying, be loose, change it for your style. So there's a lot of pop culture references that, uh, we've sort of updated. There's a lot of local references we throw in for good times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, basically these three guys were sick of Christmas Carol. They'd done Christmas Carol their whole lives. I was like, hey, you know, we got to do something else. Right. There's got to be something else we can do. And they came up with every Christmas story ever told. Uh-huh. And then uh, the people who found it actually were the guys over at Meadowbrook Theater in Rochester Hills. Uh-huh. And they came to us and said, look. We got our schedule all planned. You guys got your schedule planned. What if you guys produce this thing, um, you know, cast it and run it at your place for two weeks, and then we'll take over and run it for two weeks at our place? So they came to us with a script, and we said, sure. You know, being the smallest, newest theater company in the state, talking to the biggest, <laughs> oldest theater company in the state. Right. I don't know if they're the oldest, but they're the, the biggest resident theater company. Uh-huh. And they came to us, and we're like, yeah, right. we'll do something with you guys. are cool. Right, right. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. So how um, how big is the cast? I mean, you said that it's three guys, but mm-hmm. with a hodgepodge, uh, if I can use the term, of these stories put That's into one, how, how does that work mechanically on stage? Uh, it's very chaotic. I believe um, it's a lot of fun. So uh, three actors play every character. So, really? Yeah, there's a lot. Hmm. Um, the premise of the play, especially the way that we're doing it, is um, you know you have three actors who abandon Christmas Carol. So the only thing they have to work with is everything they can find from Christmas Carol mm-hmm. or from backstage. Mm-hmm. You know, so at one point we actually have gentlemen wearing underwear on their heads to be reindeer. Ah, it's lovely. Um, well, with a little reindeer thingy, right? With a little reindeer thingy, not just uh, not just the undies, but right. Uh, right. Um, and so there's a lot of hat changing. There's no like full costumes really, except for the Christmas Carol costumes, and uh-huh. um, and it's just fast paced and it's fun and there's music and mm-hmm. dancing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the, the, it's it's nonstop and it is. Audiences have been just going crazy over it. And mm-hmm. part of the, the one of the sad things is we are uh, Nyan sold out. Pretty much for this weekend. It's this is the last weekend, but the good thing is it's um, it's going over to Meadowbrook and they have a much larger theater. Right. So um, you know that's that's the place. Do you know where where can people in the Lansing area find information for the shows at, at Meadowbrook? Um, you can call their number uh, at two four eight three seven seven three three zero zero. You are the most prepared guy I've ever seen. <laughs> Keep talking. Here. Um, and the shows run basically, uh, the 11th through the 13th and the 18th through the 20th, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, two shows on the 12th and the 19th at two thirty and eight. And then the 11th and the 13th and the 18th and 20th are eight o'clock shows. Mm-hmm. They run it alongside with Christmas Carol, so the people who are <laughs> sick of Christmas Carol can join us and having fun with everything else, Great. including Christmas Carol. Right. Very cool. Um, you said the Williamston Theater is a new 
theater group. Is this your first show? How long has... has well, this is our third short yeah, show, actually. Good. It's our first season. We started out with a play called Rounding Third, okay. and then uh, this is the second show. The third show coming up is called Fully Committed, and it stars Errol here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's going to be... It's a one-man show, and he plays... What, do you play 40 characters? Yeah, 37 different characters, so... Every Christmas story is sort of a warm-up for <laughs> right. this coming-up show. Yeah. yeah, I play uh, an out-of-work actor, which mm-hmm. is not so much a stretch, right. um, <laughs> and uh, living in New York and working at a restaurant, taking uh, taking calls and taking uh, reservations. reservations down in the basement, mm-hmm. um, in this dingy basement where everything's falling apart. And I play not only the guy taking reservations, but every call that comes in. So right. it's pretty fun. It's pretty crazy. Really cool. So, so, so you've got... Uh, three, almost four shows under your belt. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about both of your acting or directing careers. How did how did each of you get started in the theater, Errol? Um, well, I went to school. Uh, I don't know if your listeners will like this. I went to U of M. No. But uh, well, uh, that'll happen. I, <laughs> I studied theater there for a while. Uh-huh. Um, about two thousand. I've been ever since that year. I've been working around Southeast Michigan as an actor, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Lansing up at the Borsed Theater. I just got my uh, equity card, which is the Actors Union. Oh, cool! Um, We're a union theater, by the way. Oh, very yeah. good. So people, places like Williamson keep hiring me and giving me work. So yeah. uh, that's that's me basically. Very cool. Yeah. He's he's great. Anyway, um, and he won an award, you know, for uh, for his performance at Boar's Head, a Wild Award. I'll go on. Yes, he did. He was, he's an award-winning on. actor, and he's going to be at the Williamson Theater. Uh. <laughs> Me, I I got my Bachelor of Arts here at Michigan State University. Mm-hmm. Good job. Thank you so much. Fantastic. And then uh, I went to Nebraska to get my MFA, which mm. is okay. It's not Big Ten, no competition really. Um, and then I went to Los Angeles for many years and starved and then i uh, came back here came back to williamston um actually to, to get close to the purple rose theater I, i'm an associate artist with the purple rose in oh, chelsea yeah and which is jeff daniels theater that's right so i came back really to to be a company member of that theater because i kept coming back here to do shows anyway right and chose williamston because i liked the town i liked the school system um i have a daughter who is now in sixth grade and mm-hmm. i wanted her to go to a school that I liked mm-hmm. the school I like. And then uh, I looked at Williamston. It looked almost identical to Chelsea, except it didn't have a theater. And I thought, wow, it'd be really nice to work right here at home. Right. So um, got three other people. Uh, Tony Caselli, who uh, worked for 12 years at the Purple Rose. Uh, Chris Purchase, who was there for 13 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, Emily Sutton-Smith, who worked at the Michigan Theater and the other college town over there right. <laughs> and uh, the four of us got together and started this theater company a year ago and well actually it was longer than that we started the groundwork going for it back in what 94 mm-hmm. becoming a not pro- not for, not for profit and then uh, just just doing all the groundwork getting all the, the things going right. finally we got in the building last year mm-hmm. and had to turn an old furniture store into a theater which was wow that was mm. crazy, but we did it in about three months, and then we got the first show up, Additional Particulars, in the summer, Fantastic. and then got our first season going, so now we're here. Right, right. Well, how many of these um, theater troops are there in Michigan? How many professional, professional theater yeah. companies are there? Theater companies, excuse me. I think there are around 10 resident theater companies, mm. uh-huh. uh, something like that, and the, we're the only two uh, 
we uh, and Boar's Head are the only ac actual uh, equity companies. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some that are trying that are want want to be equity very soon. Peppermint Creek, I know, has been talking about going union. I think. I hope I'm not offending anyone. And uh, Icarus <laughs> Falling are, are two that are you know, would like to, I, I do believe, would like to become equity soon. But we're the only two in this area. Mm. Uh, Purple Rose, Performance Network, Detroit Rep, right. uh, you know, Meadowbrook, those, those are some of the, the others in the area. Right, right. I, tell me a little bit about, I think that a lot of people um, think about actors, think about acting and performance arts, and I'm not sure that many people grasp the amount of work that really goes into into putting on a show putting on some kind of performance what what does it mean to you guys or what do you personally do to prepare for these kinds of performances how many hours of work how how grueling is this uh well step one contemplate suicide I think. <laughs> uh especially with this show um because of the process and the time that they had because they had another show in there uh we rehearsed it in about 15 days wow. before we opened and so it was it was loud and crazy and nutty and um they gave us a little extra cash to show up off That's book <laughs> um, so we were off booked for the first day and we just hit the ground running and um a lot of sweat a lot yeah. of laughs, a couple tears. But what do you but, do when you, I guess, what is the actual method? How do you go through? And, and, um, well, it varies uh, based on the director a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But for a show like this, um, it's it's basically let's look at the script, let's let's learn the script, and then let's get it on its feet. Let's block it. Uh, the Williamson stage is pretty unique because it's a thrust stage, so you have people on three sides of you. So you've mm. always got to be wary of like who can see you when, right? And um, and just running around and you know figuring out how to make things funny and how to make things poignant at times. And um, uh, well, the magic of these guys, though, also is that they they have a, a great director. <laughs> it's magic because um, Tony Caselli has yeah. has worked on a thrust stage forever, so he knows how right. to. Uh, you know, right. to make guys make pictures that that uh, focus on every section of the audience. You know, sometimes right. people worry about being in the side sections because there's three and they go, well, shouldn't we be in the center? Right. Because everyone thinks that way. But really, some of the best seats are in the side just because the way Tony directs it, it's, it's in the round. You know, these mm -hmm. people are all over the place. Mm -hmm. But they find things, you know... I saw one a part of one of the rehearsals, and they just keep going over and over the same one minute of dialogue until they find a little jewels in it, and then they go, "Oh, that's great! Let's try it that way." Okay, right. and then they and then they put it back on its feet, and then they go, "No, no, what if I do this?" And then and then they find something that's just really terrific, mm -hmm. and then they go on to the next section, and then they put them all together. It's like a roller coaster. You build this roller coaster, and you know Tony's in charge of where the up parts are and where the down parts are, and when right. you see it all come together and smooth out after the last few runs, it's it's really incredible. Right. Watching the way they do it. Yeah. All right. the while you have, you know, light designers and prop designers and costume designers running around you trying to figure stuff out, mm -hmm. grabbing you for a second, trying on some pants, and then before you know, you got some wacky prop in your hand that you didn't right. have the day before. <laughs> this so. doesn't sound like your traditional 9-to-5 job. No. Uh, <laughs> but what's nice with a the, with the theater like this is it actually is about 40 hours a week. Right. Um, and sometimes as actors, well, especially in southeast and in, in around the mid Michigan, southeast Michigan area, you have to juggle two show, two jobs, you know. So our rehearsal process was primarily three o'clock in the afternoon to eleven o'clock at night, mm -hmm. you know, and then I'm working my other jobs right. before that. And 
usually making my boss kind of angry doing that, but <laughs> making enough money to survive. But right, I right. wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't turn it in for anything else. Right. It's a, it's a hoot. Fantastic. Uh, one technical question that, that I have. When you say a thrust uh, stage, is that similar to a Shakespearean setup, or what's the difference? I'm trying to visualize this in my head. Um, yeah, I, I, a lot of Shakespearean setups were thrust stages. Right. A thrust is basically you have audiences on three sides, the front and both sides, right. and you have a drop behind you or a set behind you or whatever. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. yeah it's, it, that's basically it. Thrust into the – imagine a regular right, yeah. theater where the stage goes right in the middle of everybody. Right, right. That's, that's basically what we have. Mm-hmm. But very small, 88 seats in the house right oh, now. Oh, really? So it's yeah. tiny. Yeah, yeah. But th- it makes it really fun. The furthest you get away from the action is four rows. Right. So, so you're right in, right in front of mm-hmm. it the whole time. Yep. You're right there. whole new meaning to the term fourth wall. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, well, give us the information on, on the show once again. And it's, it's called Every Christmas Story Ever Told. Every Christmas Story Ever Told. Uh, there are still tickets available for Saturday, I believe. The uh, Thursday and Friday and Sunday have been sold out. But uh, you can... Get them by calling 655-SHOW, mm-hmm. 517-655-7469. Uh, you can also go to our website. It's www.williamstontheater.org. Okay. And you can find out all the information on the rest of our season as well. We have, uh, what, three more shows yeah, coming up can, in the season. You can buy tickets for my show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you wanted. If you wanted. <laughs> um, and then also you can buy tickets at Meadowbrook. Uh-huh. Um, and the shows run the 11th through the 20th, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can call Meadowbrook at 248-377-3300. Fantastic. Thank you both for coming in. Thank Thanks so much. John yeah. Leopard and Errol Gribble. Congratulations on the new uh, season, the new theater company. And I hope the shows that you have are fantastic. And Thanks. And, and my favorite cool. animal is the ocelot. Ah, uh, great. And what's your favorite animal? Uh, the uh, binturong. What is a binturong? <laughs> I, I don't know, actually. Okay. He, you were just talking <laughs> to just told me out there in the lobby great, while I was great. Well, thank you both awesome. for coming in. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of this one, John Beck from the MSU Museum. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. And we are back on Impact Exposure. Joining me in the studio now is John Beck, who's the curator for the daily work, Our Daily our daily Lives Brown Bag Series at the MSU Museum. Is that correct? Right. Actually, Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives is, um, 
is a cooperative uh, program between the MSU Museum and the School of Labor and Industrial Relations. Mm. I'm actually a professor in the School of Labor and Industrial Relations. Oh, fantastic. Our, our daily work at Daily Lives, uh, it, we've used exhibits, uh, poetry readings, fiction readings, uh, film openings, concerts, and uh, other kinds of things, along with naturally uh, a current exhibit that we have going on, mm -hmm. to explore the relationship between work and the way we talk about work, uh, yeah. so that many times uh, workers uh, write poetry about the workplace or about the experience. They use art to um, explain what it is that they do, uh, you know, with their waking hours each day. Right. Uh, anything from, uh, you know, in our current exhibit, we cover uh, farm workers, auto workers, miners, and domestic workers in two countries, South Africa and the United States. Uh, so besides our exhibits, which we run periodically at the MSU Museum, uh, because of the fact that it, we have uh, three galleries that rotate, mm -hmm. so we don't always have a work-related exhibit, uh, we have a brown bag series that does eight to ten brown bag uh, presentations each year during the school year about work topics, workers' culture topics, as, a, as we call them. And uh, then, as I said, we've done other kinds of public presentations. Right. What do you mean by brown bag? Well, brown bag, uh, you know, uh, people show up uh, this Friday, for example. Uh, we have uh, a brand-new film that is being produced uh, called 1913 Massacre. looks at a strike that went on here in Michigan in 1913 mm -hmm. in the Copper Country. Mm -hmm. During that strike, there was a Christmas party for children and someone yelled fire at that um, specific party at Italian Hall in Calumet, and uh, 74 people were killed in a melee to kind of get out of uh, mm -hmm. uh, what they thought was a burning building. Mm -hmm. There was no fire. Mm -hmm. uh, Woody Guthrie, the folk singer, wrote a song about that in the 1930s uh, or 40s, and now filmmakers are trying to look at both the song and its impact as well as the original tragedy that inspired it. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the filmmakers is coming this Friday, uh, Louis Galderi from New York, and he's going to be showing a trailer of the film uh, over the lunch hour as well as talking about the experience of making the film, what motivated uh, him and his uh, co-producer Ken Ross to make the film. Mm -hmm. So we do a number of these where they really... Uh, you know, are over the lunch hour, so people can come and eat at the MSU Museum in our auditorium, which is really a large classroom, mm -hmm. or they can uh, just come and hear, you know, kind of an interesting presentation. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So what um, exhibits do you currently have, aside from this one, currently have or are in the works of producing? Well, this one um, is going to be uh, in the West Gallery, which is the gallery on the second floor closest to Beaumont Tower. Yeah. And this exhibit looks at workers' culture in the two nations, really explains a little bit of the background about South Africa and the U.S. in, in kind of comparative terms, mm -hmm. uh, looks at the four occupational groups, looks at unions in both countries, and does so through a variety of work clothes, uh, work tools, uh, art about work by workers, mm -hmm. uh, art by uh, workers that... Uh, uh, things like uh, paint chip jewelry. Uh, auto workers used to flake off paint, excess paint from uh, racks where the cars were painted, and they would put them on a sander, and it would create kind of an almost agate-like um, uh, stone that they would mm. then use as pendants for jewelry. Mm -hmm. So we have a variety of things like that, wooden chains that people mm. made on the line. Um, so it's a it's a varied 
um, exhibit with uh, images of U.S. And, and South African farm workers, photos of uh, domestics or, or uh, renderings, uh, drawings of domestics in both nations. Um, so it's, a, I think, an interesting uh, introduction to the whole notion of workers' culture. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you talk about these pieces of art and, and songs and things like this springing up that are directly from work-related activities. One doesn't think of those immediately as, as a, a, a pivotal part of our culture, but you certainly have found a collection that exhibits that. Well, and once you start thinking about it, they're easy to find. So yeah. that if mm-hmm. you think of uh, country songs like Take This Job and Shove It or <laughs> 16 Tons, What Do You Get Another Day Older and Deeper in Debt? Right. Um, uh, or films like 9 to 5 right. or uh, Office Space, uh, the Dilbert cartoons. Yeah. There have been a number of different um, expressions about work because work is one of those things, like love, like death, that is such a, a large part of our lives that we don't necessarily always reflect on it. Mm-hmm. And in that way, we're trying to lift it uh, up and give it a little more attention, put it a little more in the centerpiece than it would normally be for people. Generally, what kind of statements um, are, are these cultural uh, contributors, I guess? What are they making about work? What do you find? Well, it's the whole range. That right. is that... Uh, one of the artists we're featuring in the exhibit, for example, uh, a man named Enkwale Nawa from South Africa, mm-hmm. um, started drawing co-workers when he worked in the gold mines. Mm-hmm. And so he would draw his co-workers, and then later, when he got some art instruction, he started to do charcoals of them. Mm-hmm. And they're absolutely riveting. They're just uh, beautiful pieces of art. So in that way, he tried to represent the respect that he had for himself and other co-workers, and many times his uh, canvases tell stories. So he had one that is called End of the Shift. And I asked him about that piece. And he said, well, when you go into the mine, it's like you're being buried, like you're dying. And when you come out of the mine at the end of the shift, it's like you are reborn and can live again. Hmm. So uh, many of the the pieces of work uh, are very profound then in what I think they cause the viewer to really, uh, you know, kind of interact with the, with the pieces. Mm-hmm. Some are very simple um, carvings uh, in wood. We have a number of carvings in stone from South Africa. Right. Um, so we have a, a whole range of things that can really show people the gamut of workers' experience as uh, explained uh, through these various artistic expressions, Mm -hmm. including song, lyrics, poems. We have a variety of things all featured right now in the West Gallery then at the MSU Museum. Right. And your current exhibit, um, comparing South Africa and the United States and and how the two cultures treat work, it strikes me that South Africa, which is a country that uh, had lived under apartheid Mm -hmm. for so long, is there a similar vein drawn to America with our history of slavery or are there differences? How is that treated in your exhibit? Well, we um, unions actually formed in the 1980s. They were one of the social movements that was the backbone mm-hmm. of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Really? Um, because hmm. of the fact that they were able to negotiate more freedom at work than they had in the streets or in their own homes Mm. because the fact naturally that uh, people who ran the factories had to get cars made or had to get tires produced or whatever Um, so that in in both nations i think you've got a history of uh, unions and a history of different kinds of civil rights struggles 
uh, with apartheid, of course, it started in 1948 and ended, uh, uh, for the most part, with the 1994 election of uh, Nelson Mandela. Right. Our experience, really, of segregation and of racism has probably been, uh, you know, a, a strong vein of American history from the beginning to this current day. Right. But uh, the kind of totalitarian version of what was able to be uh, produced in South Africa through their strong segregationist policies, you know, probably looks more like Jim Crow uh, South during the 1950s mm. uh, and earlier, going back to the 1890s. Mm. Uh, so the the exhibit is, in some ways, uh, an expression of that political reality and also uh, is a record of that because the fact that you can't talk about unions, you can't talk about workplaces, many of the images are of, of race relations in, in really in both nations. Hmm. Um, so I think that it's a, it's a strong uh, theme that runs through the exhibit. Right. So someone who comes in isn't, they are learning about labor relations, but it's, it, it extends so far out into the culture that they're learning about so much more when they head to this exhibit. You're learning, uh, if you go to the exhibit right now, you'll learn about globalization. Mm-hmm. You'll learn a little bit about age. You'll learn uh, about the geography of both nations. You'll mm-hmm. learn about the, the history of both nations in relation to unions. But the most important thing people are really learning is how work and culture interact and how it it comes out in the lived uh, expressions of people's lives. That mm-hmm. is, you know, how I um, make sense of my work life, how I make sense of how my work relates to the other parts of my life. Right. I think that people would find uh, things that would please them and other things that might displease them in a way in terms of some of the images. But uh, the, uh, the art ranges from um, abstract uh, welded uh, steel structures to stone to charcoals to, to uh, um, oils, mm-hmm. uh, acrylics. I mean, so it's really an art exhibit, even though uh, the MSU Museum is our natural history and cultural uh, history museum here on campus. It's not the art museum per se, but we're using art and all these other uh, material cultures in effect to tell a story, to tell uh, about uh, the broader experience of workers in both nations. Very cool. Um, so you had mentioned that you're a professor. Mm-hmm. Is this very related to the subjects you teach. I guess my my big question is, what classes do you teach? Well, I'm what's called an outreach professor, so okay. I actually spend all of my time is spent in the field, hmm. uh, most of the time here in Michigan, but uh, right. sometimes outside of the state. I work with the state's unions to provide um, non-credit and credit instruction for um, in labor leadership and labor history and other things along that line. Right. Uh, and also work uh, on change management with uh, labor management joint committees mm-hmm. uh, actually across the nation uh, when people are trying to strengthen their manufacturing plants or strengthen their relationships through some form of joint activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so my own background is I'm originally from the Upper Peninsula, came out of a paper mill up in the UP, mm. And I was a literature major here at MSU. Oh, really? So uh, with that background in much more kind of arts and humanities kinds of things, I was drawn to uh, the fiction and the poetry and the art and other things that were work-related. Mm-hmm. So in that way, kind of a, it's an intersection of two parts of my personal story 
um, in, in this uh, whole domain of workers' culture. But uh, I have the, uh, I'm very happy with the strong support that the MSU Museum and the School of Labor Industrial Relations has given to myself and my co-curator, Yvonne Lockwood of the MSU Museum, as we have kind of piloted our daily work, our daily lives forward for about the last 14 years. Very cool. Very cool. So why don't you uh, run through the exhibits that you have uh, right now and mm -hmm. uh, give us the information on those. Well, the, just the two things maybe that your listeners might be interested in this Friday. Uh, Louis Galderi will be in the MSU um, Museum Auditorium, which is uh, actually right in the gallery space where our current exhibit is being run, from 12.15 to 1.30, talking about his film, 1913 Massacre. Uh, that gallery, the West Gallery, has uh, uh, workers' culture in two nations, South Africa and the United States, uh, which runs to August of 2007, at, what time, at which time it will begin to travel to multiple locations across the U.S. and in South Africa as a traveling uh, exhibit. Mm -hmm. So we certainly hope that people take advantage, uh, to whatever degree they can, of the activities. Uh, people can contact the museum, uh, go on to the uh, MSU Museum website mm -hmm. uh, if they want uh, more information generally about our daily work, our daily lives, and the MSU Museum's activities. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, so if there's anything you'd like to add about uh, your work at the museum? Well, I'd just uh, uh, remind people that our website is www.museum.msu.edu, mm -hmm. and for more information, they can always call uh, the recorded hotline, 355-7474, which has recorded information about events coming up at the MSU Museum. We're open seven days a week. And uh, we're always happy to have people stop in. Fantastic. Well, thank you, John Beck from the MSU Museum, for coming in and uh, sharing with us your exhibits and your work. That's all we have for Exposure tonight on Impact 89FM. Coming up right now, we have the progressive torch and twang, so stay tuned for that. Hope you all have a fantastic evening and a good tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.